we all suffer from a bit of presentism, which is that our current moment is always the most important make or break moment. Justice plays an important role. I consider this tribunal a false tribunal and indictments false indictments. Such abhorrent crimes must not go unpunished. Proceedings will be long and complex. All rise. Welcome to Asymmetrical Haircuts, your international justice podcast with me, Janet Anderson. And me, Stephanie van den Berg. For this episode, which we are doing in partnership with JusticeInfo.net, we are going to take a close look at the election of the new ICC prosecutor. Well, we've only had two prosecutors so far at the International Criminal Court. They each uh, have served their full nine-year term. And this election's a bit different, isn't it, Stephanie, from previous ones? Because there's a special commission been set up for the election called the CEP. Yeah, the Assembly of State Parties, which are all the member states to the International Criminal Court, has put together a commission which has five members, one per regional group, and I won't get into the regional groups because I will bore us all to death, but it's very, it's supposed to be spaced out. And they're assisted by a panel of five independent experts that they've also spread out regionally. Uh, one of the members, interestingly, includes the former Canadian ambassador to the Netherlands, Sabine Nolke, who we also had on a podcast episode to talk about this. Now, the commission in the last meeting in February, before everything closed down due to the COVID-19 pandemic, agreed on a confidential list of 16 people who put themselves forward or were put forward to be interviewed. And um, they had these interviews in The Hague. And by now, there should be a short list of three to six uh, most qualified. Uh, and those are all kept under wraps. So we don't know who they are. And we're going forward through elections at the Assembly of State Parties in December this year. And that's about very briefly how the process should go. In parallel with all of that, we've also seen a big debate amongst expert commentators. One example of that debate was a big symposium organised by Opinion Juris and Justice in Conflict, um, two blogs. And they had lots of different people commenting there, which took a long time to read all of those posts. And we decided to pick up some of that with taking three of the fabulous women who were on that symposium and to redo some interesting discussion here and try and push it forward a bit for those who like to listen rather than just to read. So let's start off. Uh, Priya, could you introduce yourself? Tell us who you are. Hi, Janet. Hi, Stephanie, Dania and Dan. Um, lovely to be on this podcast. My name is Priya Pile. I'm an international lawyer. I head the Asia Justice Coalition Secretariat, and I'm a contributing editor at Opinio Juris, which Janet very kindly uh, mentioned at the beginning. And uh, Diane, can you introduce yourself, please? Yes, I'd be happy to. My name is Diane Amen. Um, I serve as the Emily and Ernest Woodruff Chair in International Law and Faculty Co-Director of the Dean Rusk International Law Center at the University of Georgia School of Law near Atlanta. Um, I'm both an American and an Irish citizen, and I mention that because uh, I think it's important to point out that I'm a citizen of a state party to the ICC, um, given that since 2012 I've had the honor of serving as the prosecutor's special advisor on children in and affected by armed conflict. That said, I want to make sure that everyone understands that uh, anything I say here is said in my personal capacity, and I'm very happy to be here today. And Danya, can you introduce yourself? 
Hi, thank you so much. Uh, my name is Dania Checo. I'm based in The Hague, and uh, I'm an international criminal lawyer um, from Canada, and I've worked at the ICC, ICTY, and many uh, NGOs in The Hague working on international justice issues. Great. Thank you so much for doing that, all three of you. We wanted also to make sure that listeners had a chance to hear your voices to help distinguish who's who, and we'll try and keep shouting out your names. Sorry for mispronouncing your name to start with, Diane. And really, just to let you know, we've got this incredible socially distanced panel as such here. We're 12 hours apart from each other overall. So, I mean, it's really extraordinary that we've managed to pull you all together. Thank you all so much for taking part. Yeah, apologies in advance for the technology sound you might be hearing that uh, we're trying to uh, overcome all of that and have the best recording possible. But as always with these calls where you're connecting multiple people over multiple continents, something goes wrong, but we'll do our best. So let's kick off. So Priya, let's get some context first from you. This isn't just an election for the the new prosecutor in December. It's uh, a big year altogether, 2020. We've also got a whole load of new judges. We've also got a big international expert review been set up by the Assembly of States Party itself. You know, if I was a journalist, which I, I am, I would say that we're talking about make break year for the ICC. Is it? I think that might be a tad dramatic. I don't think it's that sort of uh, drastic, to be honest. But, um, you know, it is it is an important year. Let's put it that way. It is an important year. And I think there are a number of decisions that have been made in the last few years. There's a groundswell of discussion around the ICC, which makes it sort of more important and puts it in the center of, you know, the, the focus of a lot of people and the gaze of you know, academics, lawyers, um, international lawyers, NGOs, activists, victims' rights groups. So it is an important year. And I mean, it is an important event in terms of getting a new prosecutor on board, which is, you know, it's it's a term of nine years. So the prosecutor has a significant role to play. So to that extent, yes, it is a big year. But of course, I would also say that, you know, you do have an independent review going on, which is, again, a very big sort of new step that has been taken. And you also do have uh, judges' judicial nominations coming up at the end of the year as well. So I think that there are a lot of important pieces that are in play right now, which makes 2020 an interesting and important year. And, and Diane, do you kind of agree with Pia's assessment of where the ICC is now and why it's now maybe possibly more in focus? Um, for you, where is the ICC as an institution at this point? Wow, that's a huge question. I think I'd start by saying that we all suffer from a bit of presentism, which is that our current moment is always the most important make or break moment. I have been uh, engaged with international criminal law since the mid-90s, and it seems to be, for whatever reason, a profession or a field that perceives itself to be in constant crisis. And so it's almost the crisis du jour, if you will. If you operate in that way, it's natural to think that when you have a moment where there is a change in leadership, uh, a change that can only occur every several years, according to the statute, it's natural to to, uh, flock around that particular event as the thing that is going to um, make the change, maybe get us out of crisis. But I think sometimes we need to be a bit more humble and understand that this 
field is a process and it is an ambitious, almost utopic process, uh, a quest for the end to impunity, a quest for accountability for wrongdoers. No criminal justice system in the world has ever achieved that in any absolute or even substantial proportion. And so uh, even as we embark on the very important quest for a new prosecutor, a new leader, a new person to shape this really important institution, we have to recognize that this person is arriving with all the baggage of what has come before and will have what I suspect from the standpoint of the person is a very short time to make change, right? That the number of years that the prosecutor is in office from the standpoint of transformative change move very, very quickly. Priya, when you were putting the symposium together and you were asking different people for their, their points of view just on this specific issue, what they would like to see in the next prosecutor, everybody seems to have a point of view. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that there were a range of sort of opinions expressed. I mean, we had looking at the court as a judicial institution, something that needs to address impunity, to, you know, looking at the court as as a intergovernmental sort of treaty body. And within that, you know, you had a lot of reflection on a particular type of experience, whether the person needed to be managerial, whether the person needed to be an excellent prosecutor in a criminal justice system, what were really the, the prerequisites for somebody and what would they bring into it. And I think they looked at specific prosecutors in different systems. Diane, I'm, I'm going to quote you where you talk about the, the capitalized prosecutor, you know, the prosecutor with a capital P, the emphasis on this one person as sort of the savior or somebody who's going to, you know, bring radical change. I mean, I would say that, yes, this is, you know, it is an important post, it is an important position, but there are multiple components as well within the court system, but there are also multiple components within, you know, the, the broader range of what you're looking at in terms of accountability and impunity. I mean, now you've got, you know, a greater push towards universal jurisdiction in domestic courts, you've got a push towards complementarity. So there are a lot of other things that are also going on. But I think, you know, there seems to be some sort of consensus that the, the new prosecutor needs to be an amazing manager, an amazing prosecutor. I mean, a list of really, really incredible sort of characteristics. And Danya, I see you wanted to jump in with something. Yeah, thanks. No, I, I agree with everything that's been said, but I, I think I've been in The Hague for 10 years and um, I agree that we're, we're, we're in constant crisis. And so we're not really, in, you know, I mean, that we have to be really careful when we use that kind of a word. But what I think is new and exciting is that um, people who've worked at the court and states, parties, representatives and past presidents are being much more candid and honest about what they've experienced and what they think, uh, I would call it sort of the underbelly of the institution. Um, because if we don't address the some of the really critical problems that have some have been there the whole time, uh, we're going to get in trouble. So, and I, I think you might remember the letter or article that the four first presidents of the Assembly of States parties published last year, which I thought was pretty uh, exciting and and not something I'd seen so um, you know something so pointed. And I had a look at it again. And I would I would kind of characterize it as tough love because they're saying, look, we need the court more than ever 
the you know rule of law is slipping, uh, populist governments are rising, multilateral um, cooperation is is failing us. So this is. Um, you know, this, this institution represents, it's very symbolic, it represents absolutely um, trying to get some accountability for, for the worst crimes known to humanity. So we have to work towards making it effective. But what they say is that they're really disappointed by the qualities of some of its judicial proceedings. They're frustrated by the some of the results, exasperated by the management deficiencies that prevent the court from living up to its potential. So they want, and, and by the way, I think this letter really prompted the current expert review, or, or at least there was a res resolution in December by states' parties, because if you have your past four presidents saying, guys, we have to look at what's going on. The presidents say we want the legal standards clarified, clear prosecutorial strategies and policies, and this is what they say, an endless internal squabbles and address its management issues head on. And what I love is they end by saying, look, guys, but the rest of the obligation's on us as states parties. And you, you, we must fully embrace the, the potential of the court, you know, and, and actually stand up for it in, in public dialogue when the US and Pompeo is, is saying, we're going to destroy you, basically, we're going to find ways to make sure you can't operate, then, then the, the state, 123 state parties should stand up a lot more strongly in support of the court. And they have to give it sufficient resources, of course. I do think that it is a, a slightly different moment. The Bureau of the ASP, they did meet a couple times this year, and um, they, in January, you know, on the issue of the expert review, they are asking for really concrete results-oriented uh, guidance from this review. And uh, what, I, what really struck me, though, and this is kind of the heart of what I'm saying now, they invited the experts to be as creative and inventive as possible, and not to be paralyzed by any taboo. So I thought, wow, that's, um, there is an invitation now to be a little bit more open and to get to the heart of, of the, the challenges that we keep hearing and reading about. What strikes me hearing um, all three of you describe uh, width and depth of issues and problems is that it still seems a little strange that we say that the prosecutor, not we say, but that it, it feels like a new prosecutor is the way that change is going to happen. I mean, there's no doubt that this is a very important job. Some of our top dogs in the current international justice sphere, Bramets, who currently heads the residual mechanism, the prosecutor, uh, Khan, who's currently leading the investigations into ISIS crimes. Those are some of the names that we hear circulated. So big people want to take on this job. But should we really be projecting so much onto one person and one job? Diane? I think that it's inevitable, but just the list that Danya was reading was mind-boggling. The idea that even a huge committee can solve the many different issues that she was talking about, it seems highly unlikely to me. The idea that one individual who has many, many hats to wear, staff in the hundreds, budget in the tens of millions of euros, literally a global jurisdiction. And we can talk about whether you're a state party or not, but we're certainly seeing in the last few years innovations that begin to make the globe a jurisdiction. If it's possible to look into what's happening in Myanmar, in um, other places that are not states parties, potentially any country in the world 
needs to be concerned about its behavior coming before the scrutiny of the ICC. The intractability of the geopolitical climate at the moment. All of those things work at this system in different ways. And the idea that any one person who is the head of only one of three organs of the court can come in and make transformative change in a very short period of time. If it's an outsider, they will not even know their staff. It can take a very long time, speaking as someone who's been in administration at a much tinier level, just beginning to understand how your internal system works and who it is you can rely on and how things get done is extremely difficult. The Assembly of States parties is not always supportive of the work of the prosecutor. And I think they can say we should support, but I didn't see a lot of immediate pushback when the Secretary of State of the United States started making noise. It's been about 18 months at this point, and it took many, many months before there was any pushback. There was very little complaint when the prosecutor's visa was ostensibly revoked and effectively shrunk to you know, the immediate area around the UN headquarters in New York. I did not see many states coming forward and complaining about that. If the person that's chosen can't even maneuver physically within a country that is host to the United Nations, that in some ways is almost metaphorical of some of the issues at play. Now that said, I think that we need to demand the most talented person in the world for this position. And, you know, Priya mentioned the piece I did, and I said, we can't expect all things from all persons. We can't expect someone to be an inspiring world leader, a deft diplomat, a brilliant boss, and an incisive legal strategist all at the same time. But in fact, we do. Those are the qualities, the person who is chosen has to have those four qualities in some amount, or they should not be on any list. Even if they have those, and we know that each person will have more of some and less of another, we can only hope that they will have the judgment and wisdom and sufficiency of information, if you will, to deploy those talents at the right time in the right place. And sometimes they'll make mistakes simply because the response was unanticipated. Or it, you know, as we see now, news cycles are changing in 24-hour, 12-hour, 6-hour segments. The decision you made yesterday may not be right for the moment tomorrow. And so I think those of us who help shape perceptions of the court and the work of the court have to understand that as well, right? But we do need to demand the best person. And we can only hope that that person will have some pixie dust of charisma that she or he gets a bit of a honeymoon from uh, the shapers of perception, from the people in the building, from the Assembly of States parties and the other stakeholders. There needs to be that, that room of six or 12 months where the person is able to fill the job, to build confidence within their their tower of the ICC premise, premises and then move outward. 
And I think sometimes there is a less room than might be needed for that. Priya, do you think this also, the importance of the prosecutor also says something about the position of the ICC now? It is the only show in town and it's not because uh, everybody always clamors for the ICC and then we all have to explain that the ICC does not have jurisdiction here, but here and here are these and these mechanisms or you could lobby for this and this. Is it also that the prosecutor now kind of becomes more important because the ICC is a bit in flux and it's transforming from everything at the ICC and to the ICC as a final resort and let's look at what can be done locally? I think, you know, a part of it, of course, is this time frame. It's been 20 years. So I think that sort of comes up as a, as a benchmark, as, you know, a, a frame of time, which, you know, that, that it's sufficient for the ICC to have shown results. I mean, I think that's one of the reasons for the focus as well. You know, there's a lot of focus, of course, on the ICC. And, and when you talk about international justice, of course, there's a lot of focus on it. But I don't think it's the only game in town, you know, to put it colloquially, to the extent that you actually have, you know, the extraordinary chambers in the courts of Cambodia going on. You've got different specialized chambers that look at war crimes in different countries as well. You've got, you know, the Kosovo chambers, you've got the STL. So, I mean, there are actually a range of other mechanisms that, of course, have a more specific focus, have a different focus that aren't seen as this one big global court. I mean, that, that of course, is, is a fact. But I think, you know, I, I would sort of draw the case of what's happening in Myanmar right now to highlight the fact that as strategies, people don't put all their eggs in one basket. So it's not all about the ICC. I mean, right now you've, you've had advocacy groups and lawyers that have actively, you know, looked at other forums, including the International Court of Justice. You've got the IIIM, which is the independent investigative mechanism for Myanmar ongoing. So there are a range of other mechanisms and other actors as well. And that's, of course, at the international level in a way. I mean, I, of course, then you do have universal jurisdiction cases. You do have other forums. Of course, it's not simple. It is complicated and it is technical and, and difficult. But I think, you know, it's it's... It's not that there is only this one place that you can achieve justice or, you know, get accountability. But it is important. I mean, it still is important. I mean, that's the one thing I would like to highlight, that there's a range of mechanisms, but this is still a very important mechanism that we need to keep, keep focus on as well. Danya, in the um, job description, it uh, talks about how the prosecutor and deputy prosecutor have to be competent or highly competent, uh, have extensive practical experience, good knowledge, be fluent of um, one of the languages of the court. But also there's these um, three clear words there, high moral character in the job description. And you've been writing on that issue. What, What does that mean to you? Well, to start, what's interesting is it's not defined anywhere, I think. And it's also, by the way, a requirement for the judicial candidates. So we should remember that. And just to step back, why it's struck a nerve so deeply is because those of us who've worked in the trenches, I'm using that loosely, but in, in in the courts, worked with judges and prosecutors, and have seen some low moral characters, I'll put it that way. Some people that might not stand up to what the the Rome Statute requires. And because of that frustration, many of us have have stayed quiet. We haven't uh, talked about it because of many reasons. 
The Open Society Justice Initiative has, you know, for about six or eight months, they've been campaigning around these three words because they're, they're brilliant. I mean, it's, it's saying, look, you must pick someone, states parties, that has high moral character. They have to have integrity. They have to have ethics. And maybe an outsider who doesn't work in this field would say, what the heck are you talking about? <laughs> of course, judges are ethical. Of course, someone running for one of the, the well, the, probably the most senior prosecutorial role in the, in the world has integrity. And, and unfortunately, it's not that simple. And what I've discovered in, in my research is that the elected officials are simply not vetted that well. They're just not. The fact of the matter is, of course, their CVs are looked at. And of course, now we have the Committee on the Election of the Prosecutor, the CEP, and the experts, which is a novel body, which is, and, and the, the committee themselves say it's like a double vetting. And it is a vetting of sorts, but it's not um, a deep look at to peop into people's characters. Beyond the, uh, mind you, they do get interviewed. Of course, they are being interviewed, and the committee has been frankly fantastic. We've worked with them, we've talked to them, and they've been very open and receptive to learning more about what the NGOs are saying and what people, practitioners are saying. Dania, we understand that you specifically had somebody who came to you with a potential claim of sexual harassment against one of the rumored candidates for the ICC prosecutor. Can you tell us a bit more about how that played out? That's exactly what happened. And um, it unfolded in a way that I never would have expected. So someone actually came to me uh, in confidence and after 10 years of really looking past, uh, and I'm ashamed to say, looking past claims uh, such as this many times, seeing things with my own eyes, experiencing some of myself, not just harassment, but bullying and abuse of power and other egregious, I would say, um, behavior, I decided that's enough. I, I decided I have to help this person, at least uh, assist in having, allowing them to make their claim heard. And it, what's unfolded is, yeah, talking with the committee and their willingness to receive claims. And by the way, they've received at least three. And I can't obviously discuss them. I only assisted uh, with one. But it kind of stops there. And that's where a few of us um, have really been uh, doing some advocacy around this. So the claim was received, but then there was no process. So the, the, the person making the claim said, Donya, can you help me? I, it looks like they're actually interested in this issue and making sure the candidates are ethical and have standards. And I'd like to share a story that was really horrible that happened to me with someone I think that's in the running. So I said, sure. And then I, I, they said, yes, we'll take the claim, but you know, we'll, we'll see if it's credible and that's about it. And we'll, we'll t consider it if we think it's credible. So I went back to this person and she decided not to reveal her name to them because of the lack of safety to her security. Of course, in all likelihood, they would be keep it confidential, but we, we didn't have anything in writing and there was no uh, procedure. So a lot of things have happened since then. Uh, I wrote the blog for Pedio Euros and it, it re I was really shocked by the, the, the reaction amongst uh, civil society, but also from the ICC, people coming to me in private and saying thank you. And I actually get emotional because it's, um, it was really hard to write it. It was really, really difficult. Difficult because I worry about being a troublemaker, about um, being seen as a raging feminist, which maybe I am, but I decided I have to do this for that person in particular that came to me. So, and then I got a lot of positive feedback saying, no, 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 that was really good, we need this, there's a lot of stuff happening in our institution, and we do need a high, someone with high moral character um, at the helm of our office. So, 
And there, by the way, there are so many fantastic people there as well, and that's why I'm still here. It's not to say that it's the worst place, and, and of course, harassment and sexism and racism is everywhere. It's just to say that we're just as professionals and we should know better and do better. What's happened? There's been a series of letters by OSJI and the Women's Initiatives for Gender Justice. I also want to give a big shout out to Atlas, and I think this organization or group, collective of uh, international women lawyers, has done more for this field in terms of gender justice, um, women and, and racial equality, and uh, have, making people who are, feel so voiceless have feeling supported for the first time. And I'm one of those people that feel supported. And it's culminated with a letter very recently that is not public, and we've actually written to the Bureau of the Assembly of States Parties. Um, this is the administrative arm of the sort of governing body, which is the ASP. And uh, President Kwan is the president, there's two vice presidents, and there's 18 other states parties that are part of the Bureau. And we also wrote to a few other uh, states. Why? Because there is no process to hear claims of, of harassment or other misconduct. And we thought, this is so bizarre and we want you guys to introduce one. So the committee on the election of the prosecutor did everything they could, but they don't have in their terms of reference any process. So they were really stopped by their own mandate and, and that's very clear and they did their absolute best. Now they've done the interviews, they've interviewed um, online the candidates and uh, we'll know by the end of this month who the three to six finalists are. And then there's a chance before December for the states parties to do, for the very first time, to vet these people. So we are asking, we are really calling on states parties to take this very seriously, to look at the statute, to look at not only Article 42.3, which says that the prosecutor must have high moral character, but also Article 44 sub 2 which says the prosecutor has to ensure the highest standards of efficiency, competency, and integrity in its employment of staff. By including both of these, I mean, you have to include, of course, the whole statute, but pointing these two out, uh, it's not only that they have to uh, have a clean record, but they also have to tackle the misconduct that's happening in the office and to do it in a robust way. Daniel, what kind of structural changes do you think are needed in order to, uh, to deal with this? You can just say, yeah, yeah, we'll do that, we'll vet them. But we're asking, and I, it's something that actually came from my blog, that it should be fair, transparent, and safe. And fair, I think, is the, the most tricky one. It should have due process. What I am absolutely thrilled to say is the, the person making this claim really will not go forward unless the candidate confidentially has a chance to respond. This is absolutely necessary because if someone doesn't get put forward or elected on the basis of a one-sided claim, it's, out, it's outrageous, I think, for anyone and especially for lawyers to, to go ahead with something like that. It has to be transparent. So the information about it has to be on the website. There has to be a channel, a communication channel available, like an email that's confidential. And, and easily accessible to people to make claims. Finally, safe, and that's someone who's actually trained in these types of issues that can uh, understand what a victim might be going through to take the call and offer any potentially psychosocial support. So in a nutshell, that's what we're suggesting. And just finally, my idea is that obviously not this year, but ultimately we need something really permanent and for the judges as well. So, I mean, you have the, the, the heads, the elected 
officials who are really the key people in the institution who aren't being robustly vetted. Whereas when I worked there, I have to have an extensive security check. If anything arose in that security check, you bet your, you know, it would be, it would be investigated. I would not be there. So I find it really unfair and just mind-boggling, another word to use again, that the people who are in charge aren't checked in this way. There is a body, the, internet, the uh, independent oversight mechanism, and I'll just wrap it up. They, they already exist. They already can investigate judges and elected officials. So my idea is why can't their mandate be broadened for elections um, so that they can also take claims when there's claims about candidates. Everything you're describing here sort of suggests that we, we're at the point of a big cultural shift, maybe, in international criminal justice circles, where we're now actually having some of the conversations that need to, need to have. Is, is that what you're saying? Yeah, I would, I would agree I, with that. I think I have really thought about whether I would even stay in this field, to be completely honest, because of the organizational and institutional culture at many of these international justice institutions and NGOs, by the way. I don't want to leave them out. There's a lot of problematic behavior there, too. So I'm thrilled by this conversation. The fact that I'm working with Atlas, with these women's groups, with Open Society, with women's initiatives, I, I, have, I have to say I haven't felt this excited about being in this field. And, uh, you know, I've had lots of highlights. But this is really about how we treat each other and how we behave and uh, whether we want to look at ourselves, and I know that's being tossed around a lot on Twitter, but we, we do need to look in the mirror. And I want to also say we all are responsible. I'm responsible. I've, you know, I've accepted this culture for my whole time here, and I didn't speak up. And, and I'm, I do think that we're finally, because of these conversations and, and letters, we feel like a relief. We can talk about it. We can come up with new ideas. We can maybe make these institutions better. So I do think there's something's shifting, and uh, I'm happy to, to say that. Priya, what's your, what's your take on this, I guess? The irony of institutions that are meant for accountability to not have that internal accountability is something that always strikes me in a very strong way. That blog post really blew me away in terms of, you know, I think also the statistics on the harassment or abuse within the legal profession and you know the IBA report the the various reports that were cited that talk about this being endemic and you know I think this comes through from the grassroots in the sense that it comes through through your domestic jurisdiction it comes through through your national systems as well and if it's unchecked in an international institution you don't have either the process or the substantive means to regulate this it really is a ticking time bomb. And I think, you know, with the Me Too movement and and all that's happened in the last few years, this was definitely overdue. And it was really about time that, you know, it, it's getting the prominence and the the uh, sort of focus that it deserves. I mean, as Diane says, you know, it's, it's, it's coming at a strange time, but better late than never and probably better now, especially if you do have allegations that are, you know, that can be substantiated against somebody who's on that list. So... Yeah, I mean, I think this is critical. Diane, do you see it the same way? Do you see a shift? Well, I'd like to answer a different question or to make a different kind of comment. I just wanted to say this is a terrific moment. And in some ways, this may in longer term prove to be the most pivotal aspect of this particular election cycle. As Danya says, reform of the workplace in the legal profession is long overdue. 
And I do get a sense that perhaps in the international environment, it may be worse than it is in some national systems, perhaps the heterogeneity of personnel and uh, value systems makes it that much more difficult both to pinpoint abuse and to do something about it to change a culture when the culture is that much more diverse and pluralistic. So I think we should really be grateful for this particular moment. It's unfortunate that it's happening in the middle of the process and that um, everyone is essentially cobbling together what feels like it should be an appropriate response. And so my hope would be that once this cycle is over, that there is a concerted effort at looking at this issue in a rational way from beginning to end. And Danya has spoken a lot about issues with process. From my standpoint, personally, there's, there's, there's a considerable issue with substance. The phrase high moral character comes from a different century. And the notion of what is moral under the law has itself been a tool of abuse. And so for me, those words do not resonate, do not tell me what we are looking for in 2020 for a prosecutor. The vacancy notice implicitly accepted that because it expanded on that to refer to excellent management and technical and legal skills. And then this is the one that resonated with me impeccable personal and professional integrity. And for law professionals, that is a substantive phrase that is more meaningful. It still needs definition, but I think it, it, it puts it right in our place and in our time. And so I would like to see a regulatory framework that defines the elements of the substantive requirements through maybe amendments to the rules of procedure or something to that effect, in addition to the process. And then the last piece I think is really important is to make sure that these requirements, which must be upon all elected officials, judges as well as the prosecutor and the deputy prosecutor for that matter, that any procedural innovation that is created in this moment extends the review process, the ability to make complaints, the requirement to have scrutiny throughout the term of that elected official. So that it's not just a, you get over the gate once and you're home free, but there's an understanding that this is an ongoing, very real obligation. And I suspect that if we have these kinds of rigorous requirements at the top, that will have a knock-on effect that those officials who have gone through that level of scrutiny will take more seriously their obligation to police and regulate similar behavior within their own workplace. I found this really interesting to see how we've moved from the uh, the big picture of the whole world and this incredible global jurisdiction that this this new individual inherits in in some way that where all the critique is from different people through to understand some of the very specific considerations on the issues of uh, what what kind of an individual this uh, this needs to be I know that you know we've only scratched the surface 
of this and we we're going to have to return to this maybe even after we see who the different names are um sometime as we get into the the rest of the process so i hope that you're all up for maybe uh, revisiting this at uh, at some other point thank you all for uh, for taking part we also ask uh, another main question uh, to everybody just at the end to make it clear that this is a conversation as opposed to a panel and a lecture from people so what have you been reading recently and it can be as completely not on icl on international criminal law as you like that you would like to recommend to people reading watching listening to priya let's start with you well I read something that was quite controversial. I mean, I was I was I was interested in knowing a bit more about the controversy. I read American Dirt, which is the story of a Mexican who migrant woman who sort of crosses the border into the US. It's got a lot of backlash in terms of, you know, voicing uh, an experience that the author hasn't had or isn't close to. I mean, with all the context and all the backlash, I did find it quite gripping. and you know it did highlight certain issues for me so i don't know i mean for me the jury is still out on the book i'm i'm quite conflicted about it but um, yeah that's the latest thing i've been reading danya what is uh, in your uh, bookcase and or pre-programmed on your netflix or whatever you use to um you know as they say on the bbc other brands are available uh <laughs> <laughs> Well, to be honest, uh, with the lockdown and homeschooling and working full time from home, I'm listening to audiobooks now, which I hadn't done a lot before. So, not a lot of um, real books, which I miss. But I'm reading, finished trying to lis- finish listening to Orlando uh, by Virginia Woolf because I'm in a I'm in a, ha- a book club here in the Hague with uh, women from all over the world, and we do we do every couple months a book. And then I'm watching, um, which is sorry, I should say, is is uh, beautifully written, and I think it's the first one of the first books to deal with um, tra- uh, being trans and uh, someone who changes from a man to a woman and and what that means. So it's it's really fascinating, um, and goes through a few centuries. So lots of things to learn about and read about. And I'm watching Ugly Delicious, which I love. Um, this is David Chang. He's a Korean American, world famous cook. and he goes through different types of common foods like pizza and fried chicken and tacos but he gets really into the origins of the food and the race the race dynamics like for fried chicken i watched last night and um the racial connections and the racism connected to for black people uh with that and and um yeah and he travels the world and i love food and i love travel and i love the history of food so that's something i'd recommend and it's beautifully put together And Diane, what about you? I spotted you looking back at your bookshelf. Are you going to try and see try and remember what you've just been reading? I'm reading an awful lot lately. Um I have started La Peste by Camus because of the pandemic. Uh it's a lovely book, but it makes me so sad uh because of the immediate references that I'm I'm finding that I'm uh reading a little bit and trying to digest it and then going back to it. I am working as you know on the roles that women played at the Nuremberg trials and doing a separate article at the moment on a French woman prosecutor uh who had a colonial moment before Nuremberg and so I've been reading a lot of post-colonial work uh most recently Said's cultural culture and imperialism um I have just picked up and maybe this is also in the moment at least in the United States I've picked up Nickel Boys by Colson Whitehead and uh gotten through a few chapters it's terrific and I have to tout a female 
Um, so I also have on my shelf and I'm about to read Mary Ellen O'Connell's Art of Law in the International Community. She is a terrific thinker and author, and I'm very much looking forward to plunging into that book. Anything you want to add, Stephanie, from your bookshelves? My bookshelves are, um, I got a, a book on true crime uh, from somebody, which, of course, now I don't recall what the title is and I can't run into my bedroom uh, or my bookcase because I'm in my little home studio. But it's about uh, women obsessed by true crime in different uh, guises. So there is a woman who identifies with the victim. There is a woman who identifies with the perpetrator. There's a woman who identifies as the detective. And this woman kind of weaves it all together. And I got it from one of... Uh, my friends who was like, I know you listen to all those true crime podcasts. Here is a book that is totally for you. And it also goes into why women are in, why there's a lot of interest from women in this true crime genre. And it's really fascinating, but it also calls out my kind of, I guess, ghoulish attraction to true crime podcasts. So it's, uh, it's, it's fun and it's psychological and it also has some really, really crazy stories. So I would really recommend that and I'll put in the show notes what it's called. Um, I want to thank everybody for uh, your time and your insights and your recommendations. We're obviously on the podcast. We'll also keep following the election process at the ICC. So for our listeners, be sure to subscribe. That way you always get the latest episode automatically on your phone or wherever you get your podcast and listen to us. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thanks, everybody. This is great. It's so good to see all of you. Thank you. This was Asymmetrical Haircuts, your international justice podcast hosted by me, Janet Anderson. And me, Stephanie van den Berg. You can find out all about the show and why we interview women experts on our website, asymmetricalhaircuts.com. Where you'll also find all the ways to subscribe and don't miss an episode. Do that. You can follow us on Twitter as well, at asymmetricalh. This show was brought to you in partnership with justiceinfo.net. Music is by audionautics.com. Stay safe and enjoy your day.